Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, it's Manveen here. In today's episode of Stories of Our Times, we look at the rise and rise of Bitcoin. I'm handing over to one of our producers, Asia Fuchs, to take you through it. And we start on February the 8th, when Tesla announced it had bought $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin. Elon Musk makes one of his riskiest bets ever, linking Tesla's fortunes to Bitcoin. We have invested an aggregate $1.5 billion in Bitcoin. 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 Bitcoin spiking as we learned just moments ago that Tesla bought $1.5 billion of the cryptocurrency. Well, I believe I was asleep when the announcement uh, came out. Yeah, I think it might have been 6 a.m. Eastern time or something. I woke up and I looked at the price chart and we were up something like $7,000. And so I knew that something crazy had happened and someone texted me that Elon bought Bitcoin and I thought they were kidding. I went on crypto Twitter, of course, the best place to get information. And there it was. There was confirmation they actually did buy Bitcoin, their treasure reserves. I, I couldn't really believe it at first. It was certainly one of the more notable mornings uh, in the history of me being a Bitcoiner. You have these wild expectations about what Bitcoin would become, but it's moments like that that you realize, wow, we have cultural salience. This thing isn't going away, and to a certain extent, we've made it. Over the years, a lot of people have been dismissive of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is worthless artificial gold. That is not something I think the world needs. There's one Bitcoin sitting there, and now we got to find somebody else. And they, and they come to an end. It doesn't have any income. It doesn't have any use. It doesn't have any utility. So it's a pure speculative, self-fulfilling bubble. At first glance, it can appear chaotic. Last March, Bitcoin traded at around $4,000 per coin. A couple weeks ago, Bitcoin hit an all-time high of nearly $60,000 before crashing by 25% a few days later. You do get almost inoculated against the volatility. It just becomes a fact of life. Now, it looks like we might break that $60,000 record before this episode goes out, but you'll have to look that up on your own. At this point, it's hard to deny that Bitcoiners could be onto something. Bitcoin behaves in this bubbly manner, but the long-term trajectory is up. For half an hour, let's imagine that Bitcoin succeeds in the way that people who believe in the project think it will. What would that world look like, and what would it mean for the global economy? You're listening to Stories of Our Times, from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Ossie Fuchs. Today, what if Bitcoin hits $1 million? A few weeks before Tesla announced it had bought all that Bitcoin, Elon Musk changed his Twitter bio to hashtag Bitcoin. Which was enough confirmation for me, honestly, that, you know, he was embracing the asset. We had all suspected that Elon was doing this for a while at that point. Even before that, he'd posted an anime girl Bitcoin themed on Twitter 
which was maybe more playful, but it was sort of indicative that he was interested in the asset. Nick Carter is a partner at Castle Island Ventures, an early-stage venture firm for blockchain startups, and the co-founder of Coinmetrics, a blockchain analytics startup. Him buying over a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin in the corporate treasury of Tesla was final confirmation that he was one of us. And that really mattered. I mean, Elon is the most dynamic entrepreneur on Earth, and I think a lot of people look up to him, and they see him as someone that embarks on these civilizational projects, whether it's electric vehicles or satellite clusters for internet. And I think this was really his way of saying, I believe Bitcoin is a civilizational project of true importance that we have to get right in order to shape society in sort of a favorable long-term direction. And that's what I believe. I think Bitcoin is this long-term project that's going to take decades but it's going to get us to a more egalitarian situation in the long term. Recently, Nick was called a non-lunatic Bitcoiner, and he made that his Twitter bio for a few days. What can I say? Bitcoiners are really into their Twitter bios. They also have a reputation for being fanatical evangelists peddling magic internet money. So I wanted to speak to someone who's seen as even keeled and level-headed to help me understand why he believes in this technology so much. First though, we do have to explain what Bitcoin is. It's kind of unavoidable and there isn't a super simple way to do it, but I asked Nick to try. I would say Bitcoin is two things, and this is part of the confusion. So one is the protocol. So a system for conveying value freely over a communications channel, typically the internet. It doesn't have to be the internet. It could be carrier pigeon or could be radio, for instance. The other thing that Bitcoin is, I would say, Bitcoin is itself the name of the monetary unit that is transmitted throughout that protocol. And so you could refer to it as a currency or a money. A lot of people have this idea, right? Like, okay, It's a currency, so that means it's like the pound or the dollar, and you should be able to spend it on your morning coffee when you go out to the store to buy milk. But people don't really do that. These days, right, transactions are too slow and costly for it to work in that way. So does that, in some people's minds, that would mean that it was useless uh, as a currency as they know it? So there's this great quote from this uh, economist, Saifedina Moose. I think I'm probably butchering it, but something like, Using Bitcoin for payments is a ridiculous waste of an astonishing tool. It's akin to driving a Concorde down the street to get groceries. And I think that is a really great point because Bitcoin is something that you can use to settle a transaction of a billion dollars if you want. In fact, for most you know daily usage, Bitcoin is a poor retail-style payments network. The reason for that is that Bitcoin gives you final settlement. So there's a real final nature to those payments, which means there's no reversal possibility. Present-day Bitcoin can process 10 transactions per second, compared to the thousands per second that Visa and MasterCard are able to process. But these constraints are by design. 12,000 different entities and people around the world are running what's called a full node, This means they've downloaded the entire history of all Bitcoin transactions. That's the blockchain, and it's something you've probably heard about. 
it's actually just 350 gigabytes, so not that big. This allows these entities to keep track of the same ledger without any central coordination. No bank or government can override any of these transactions or change the code. If you opened Bitcoin up to micropayments like grocery shopping or morning coffee, the blockchain would grow really, really quickly, and it would just become way too cumbersome for many of these entities to continue their work. Essentially, it would mean more centralization. I asked Nick to talk me through the different ways that Bitcoin was used and seen since it was invented in 2009. Initially, Bitcoin was seen as a bit of a plaything. It was actually ignored by most of the people on the uh, mailing list that Satoshi released it on. Satoshi Nakamoto is the legendary and to this day, anonymous creator of Bitcoin. Virtually no one ran the software, only a handful of people that were really into it did. And there wasn't much you could do with it because it didn't have financial value. And then in early 2010, there was that infamous pizza transaction. 10,000 Bitcoin for two large Papa John's pizzas. Today, those pizzas would be worth over half a billion dollars. That was the zero to one moment where it spontaneously acquired value. And that's magical because before that, people were just transacting empty tokens on a network. And then suddenly they were laden with value. So arguably, going from zero to one was harder than going from one to one trillion. So for a time, Bitcoin was this worthless internet plaything. Then later on, it gained some more value. And people began to realize that Bitcoin had unique transactional characteristics and that they could use it for functions that they wouldn't otherwise be able to use traditional payments networks for. So the very infamous example of this would be the Silk Road, which was this marketplace online where you could buy drugs, you know, set up by Ross Albrecht, who's now serving many life sentences in prison. And the Bitcoin was the financial network that plugged into that marketplace to allow people to settle transactions with vendors. Of course, you couldn't use PayPal for that. They'd be all over it and they would shut you down. But because Bitcoin had this quality of censorship resistance, it was suitable for that. And for a while, that dominated the narrative around Bitcoin that was in the press, right? Bitcoin was the tool for drug dealers, right? However, Bitcoin is actually somewhat transparent. You know, every transaction can be analyzed and freely surveilled ultimately. And so it's really not that suitable for crime, I would say because of its transparency. Some more financial value had your first true bubble in sort of late 2013, early 2014, where it shot up to over $1,000. You had this interesting situation where Bitcoin became this reserve currency for the cryptocurrency industry. So an industry emerged around it with other exchanges, other ancillary services, but also other alternative cryptocurrencies, clones of Bitcoin and new versions of it. And so like the dollar is the reserve currency for the world, for international trade and foreign exchange, Bitcoin was the reserve currency for this online world. There was this sort of speculative casino of many, many coins out there that people could bet on, where people were basically speculating on different alternative cryptocurrencies. And Bitcoin was the one currency that backstopped that whole thing. By 2014, the financialization of Bitcoin had really begun. The Silk Road had been shut down, the darknet marketplace had become more marginalized. Progressive bankers and entrepreneurs were starting to pay attention. So initially Bitcoin monetized, but it wasn't really wrapped in financial products until sort of 2014 era. And people realized, hey, this is sort of maybe a monetary commodity of sorts, sort of resembles gold, 
let's put it in financial products and let's let people get exposure to it, retail investors. Let's let people buy it on their brokerage. And so the Bitcoin Investment Trust was founded and grew a fair amount. And other exchanges, more credible exchanges that resembled more functional financial institutions came to emerge. That really powered, I would say, the second big bull run up to 2017. 2017 was big for Bitcoin. It was all over the news. There was a huge, huge spike. You kept hearing that same story about the poor guy looking for his hard drive full of Bitcoins in the landfill. Back then, it hit $20,000 per coin. And then it crashed right down to 3,000 and stayed low for a while. It wasn't until late last year, December 17th, that Bitcoin surpassed that previous record. Bitcoin then hit $24,000 per coin. Since then, it's gone up and up, mostly. But how was that 2017 bull run different to the one happening right now? Yeah, there's really material differences, I would say. There's a market structure element to talk about, and then there's a macroeconomic element. So the market became far more mature. We saw a convergence between the financial system, the regular financial system, and the crypto industry. Banks started to provide banking services to crypto companies. That was something that was very difficult to get before. Certain regulatory bodies in the U.S. and abroad gave Bitcoin effectively a clean bill of health. They gave it a blessing. Credible entities from the asset management and financial space announced that they would be facilitating Bitcoin custody, exchange, and brokerage. Fidelity Digital Assets, where I used to work, they launched their Bitcoin product for their large clients. And that really wasn't the case in 2017. The other thing that happened, which is arguably more important, more critical, so I mean, you know, it's all well and good to make the financial plumbing for the industry better. But you still need a reason to want to get exposure to the asset class, right? I mean, people need to have a reason to buy it. And that reason came with the monetary reactions to COVID. When COVID hit, central banks realized that they would have to spring into action to effectively inject currency into their economies to keep them afloat and stop some sort of terrible recession from accompanying the virus. And the Federal Reserve was incredibly active in effectively creating new dollars and then Congress then spent those dollars into the economy. And that caused people to begin to wonder whether this specter of inflation was going to return. And we haven't really had meaningful inflation in the U.S. since the 70s. You know, So it's something that most people don't have experience with, but a few hedge funds and commodity traders and macro allocators started to think to themselves, maybe this is what will bring inflation back that to remedy the difficult fiscal position that the U.S. and other governments are in, they would embark on a more inflationary approach, thus devaluing the dollar. I think this is plausible. I think a lot of Bitcoiners think it's plausible. Bitcoin offers an alternative and a potential exit valve from monetary repression. It offers people a way to potentially protect their savings against inflation. It's not the only device they would use to do that. Gold would be one. You could also buy inflation-protected securities if you wanted. 
But Bitcoin, more than just that, more than just the correlations and the financial numbers, it's a vote of no confidence in central banks. When someone thinks about gold, they think of it as a super stable, right? Its value isn't fluctuating. And that's sort of the opposite of the way that most people see Bitcoin. You know, it's kind of super volatile all over the place. So how, how much do these two assets actually have in common? They're certainly similar in sort of their fundamental characteristics with the obvious difference that Bitcoin is dematerialized and gold is analog. One thing they have in common is that as monetary goods, their supply is not something that can be interfered with or tinkered with by humans. And that's considered to be a good characteristic. Bitcoin's supply was set at inception, but it's fixed now and it's most likely impossible to change. Gold's supply is a function of how quickly we can extract it from the earth. And gold is sort of, you have to really sift through a lot of ore to get some gold out. Gold has a 5,000-year head start, so it's much better understood by society. And as such, there's very limited volatility. Bitcoin is very poorly understood, and people have really radically differing views of, of what it should be worth. And that ends up being expressed in the price in the form of volatility. But you know, Bitcoin's come a long way in 10 years, and I'm sure that we'll converge on some more stable views of how much of society's assets or wealth should be stored in the good in a, a little while. So I expect the volatility eventually tamps down a little bit. And I wonder if you could talk me through some of the estimates of what people think Bitcoin could be worth in the next few years. Yeah, so the Winklevoss twins famously put a $500,000 price tag on Bitcoin, I think by 2030. These are the six foot five rowing twins who had a founding stake in Facebook. They cashed out in 2008 and invested that money into Bitcoin. They're now Bitcoin billionaires. Once is uh, Caceres, who's a um, Argentine payments entrepreneur out in Silicon Valley. He's a strong advocate of Bitcoin. I think he projected a million dollars per coin. There's a there's good estimates by John Pfeffer, friend of mine. He has this essay called "Institutional Investors Take on Crypto Assets." He, his estimate was in the couple hundred thousand dollar range. We've seen some estimates in the million dollar range plus. There's this common saying that in the Bitcoin community, I'm almost embarrassed saying it, that Bitcoin has no top because fiat currency has no bottom, right? So to get a sense of what Bitcoiners are like. So if the dollar hyperinflates, then there won't be an upper bound on Bitcoin because the value of the thing you're pricing it in is going to zero. We've never really had a synthetic monetary commodity with these qualities before. So this is our first time going through this as a society. And the challenge is estimating how much of our resources and wealth we're going to choose to store in this medium. Today, we're storing, give or take, about a trillion dollars in it. People compare it to gold a lot. We've talked about that. Gold is, in the aggregate, collectively worth about 10 to $11 trillion today. So if you think Bitcoin will be more influential than gold in the future, you can use that as your benchmark. Bitcoin's already at a big number, for sure. But all things considered, it's still a, a pretty junior monetary asset when you consider its peers. What if all of these, these optimists are, are wrong about Bitcoin? What if it crashes down to zero? You know, it was at, it was at like 4,000 just a year ago. Yeah. Do you see that scenario happening? I'm not ruling anything out. 
And as I said, this is an experiment. So, you know, you can't claim to have perfect knowledge of the future or where it's going to go. I will say, though, that I don't believe that a bug in the code would actually cause the demise of the project because there's going to be an ardent set of people, of Bitcoiners out there, that believe in the project and they're willing to reset it or undo any bugs. Certainly, bad things can happen to Bitcoin and it could get more harshly regulated and there could be catastrophic bugs. But there's always going to be that that wealth of individuals worldwide that believe in it and are not willing to give up on it. I mean, there's hundreds of billions of dollars worth of investment into Bitcoin. We have the largest financial institutions in the world that are all building Bitcoin products and working on it, and they're staffed by Bitcoiners, I'm speaking from experience. So in a certain sense, it's already infiltrated the financial system, and you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube at this point. In a moment, we'll hear about what a world looks like in which Bitcoin lives up to the predictions of its most ardent believers. But first, get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Most people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, yeah. we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I wanted to ask this non-lunatic Bitcoiner to respond to some of the common criticisms of Bitcoin, the ones we read in the op-eds of every major newspaper. Governments can just get together and ban Bitcoin outright. Some governments have banned Bitcoin. They didn't succeed in, you know, obliterating Bitcoin. They just kicked themselves and their citizens off the Bitcoin network, basically. Even when you do that, people still find a way to transact with Bitcoin. Because ultimately, you just need an internet connection and a smartphone to transact. Well, what if the U.S. built an international cartel to ban Bitcoin? I think what you would find is there would be defectors from that cartel. And there'd be states that would provide a haven for Bitcoiners, the same way that those safe haven states exist in the regular financial system. So I think not only would a ban be difficult to coordinate, and I'm not sure the US or any other country has the power to effectuate that on a global basis, but also you would find that there would be countries that would embrace Bitcoin. And actually, we see this already. Singapore, Portugal, Switzerland, they have favorable policies as it pertains to Bitcoin, tax treatment of Bitcoin. Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. That's true, but I don't think that's a showstopper, right? So the intrinsic value conversation is strange because 
Honestly, value is contingent, right? It's contextual. Gold doesn't have intrinsic value. Gold has value because society has subjectively agreed, we've come to consensus, that it's a useful monetary good. There was an intersubjective consensus that we, we found around gold. Same with Bitcoin. Bitcoin's value is solely market-derived. There's no one guaranteeing it or supporting or backstopping it. So if you're depending on the government for uh, value for your currency, you're now exposed to the political whims of that government. I think the other thing that some people don't realize is that the dollar is not backed by gold. It's not redeemable from gold, of course. Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971. So the value of the dollar is really solely a function of the government's ability to kind of mandate its usage or instill its usage, either through military adventurism, you know, and the value of the dollar is also a function of the U.S. government's credibility and its ability to charge taxes and dollars to create a tax liability. Bitcoin is a bubble, like tulips or Beanie Babies. If you look at the history of Bitcoin, we've seen five successive events where the price appreciated really quickly and then Bitcoin gave up its gains. But after every single one of those bubbly events, Bitcoin found a higher floor each time. Each low is higher than the previous low, and this has been happening for a decade now. So that looks more like society, in a messy, organic way, discovering the value of this thing. Yeah, so Bitcoin behaves in this bubbly manner, but the long-term trajectory is up. Okay, so let's take a look at one of these scenarios that we talked about earlier, one of these big numbers, right? And just try to paint a picture of what that world would look like, like say Bitcoin reaches $500,000 per Bitcoin, you know, what, what does that mean for the global economy? I think the more salient question is what conditions would have to hold for us to enter that world? And I believe at that point, the dollar would have maybe lost some of its status as the sole global reserve currency. And if you look at it, it sort of looks like the U.S. is structurally withdrawing from the world, that it's generally the world is becoming more multipolar. So I think we're getting there anyway. But if the world is in a state where Bitcoin is this genuine you know, monetary asset that's a peer with all the other ones that we use, I think what has happened is society's lost some faith in the Federal Reserve to backstop the value of the dollar. What does that world actually look like? Well, it's one where we have a global clearinghouse for value that's not controlled by any one state. So I think that's arguably a fairer system than the one we have right now, where the U.S. politicizes its dollar infrastructure. They use it for sanctions. They use it for targeted strategic objectives. It works for the U.S. It works for the political elites in the U.S. that can weaponize that dollar infrastructure for their purposes. It doesn't really work for the rest of the world. It doesn't even work for our allies. Our allies in Europe are chafing at this. For instance, European countries want to transact with Iran, but they can't because the U.S. says no one can transact with Iran because you're using our dollars, and so we're forbidding that. So I think this is a world where the U.S. loses some of that strategic power, and we return to having a more neutral clearing currency the, the way it looked when we were on the gold standard and gold was that ultimate medium of settlement between international states. 
Will we see a new class of, of crypto oligarchs emerging and who, who are they? Well, it's hard to identify every Bitcoiner because typically they don't want to identify themselves. We know there's about, give or take, 100 million people holding cryptocurrency around the world. That's based on a University of Cambridge estimate. But yeah, f- you know, functionally, a lot of Bitcoins are held in Western countries. I mean, there's definitely a lot of penetration for Bitcoin in places like Nigeria, South Africa, Turkey, Colombia, Venezuela, Argentina. We know this empirically, but a lot of the Bitcoin wealth is held in you know, Hong Kong, Singapore, US, Western Europe, China. I think a lot of the entrepreneurs that are building crypto exchanges will potentially uh, reach oligarch status if this industry goes where I expect it to go. Is there like a typical profile, you know, demographic wise? How old are they, men, women? I mean, a lot of Bitcoiners are like myself, you know, white guys, basically very tech focused uh, nerds, effectively, you know, people that were willing to take a risk and embrace a new technology and could stomach the risk of owning Bitcoin. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you expect Bitcoin to cause a dramatic shakeup in wealth globally, there will be a realignment for sure, but it may not be uh, a truly egalitarian thing. I don't think Bitcoin purports to do that, though. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these names that we've mentioned, Elon Musk, right, the Winklevoss twins, they're already like some of the richest people in the world. So you just... You kind of can't help but thinking, like, is this just going to be something that makes the rich even richer and the poor poorer? Well, we do see a lot of billionaires adopting Bitcoin as a storehold of wealth because they are strategically allocating and they're trying to figure out how they protect their wealth from devaluation. And so there are billionaires like Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategy, who is going to become a lot richer through his adoption of Bitcoin, for sure. But ultimately... I believe in Bitcoin because I do believe that it has the possibility to usher in a fairer world. I think modern central banking, as we see it instrumentalized in this country, is the cause of much of the inequality in society. When you have an extremely loose monetary regime, it's the financial industry and the elites that are very proximate to the money printer that benefit the most. And Inequality right now is incredibly high in this country, but the Federal Reserve printing dollars and having those dollars be trapped in the financial system and making their way into financial assets does not do anything to allay that inequality. In fact, it makes it much worse. The number one beneficiaries of monetary policy in the last couple of years in this country are financial elites, people that are state proximate, uh, the people that manage hedge funds, venture funds even. Um, these are people that are able to you know, get favorable rates of credit, whereas regular folks have to go to payday lenders, right? So your ability to get access to capital is really a function of your proximity to that nexus where the dollars are being created. And that's the system that I reject. I would prefer a system where it's very hard to create new units of money and where there's no one that is a true insider that can, you know, discretionarily grant themselves those new units of money before anyone else in society. And as a hard asset, Bitcoin isn't something that anyone has privileged access to. 
new units of Bitcoin are created on the open market by miners and they run very thin margins. So there's no monetary insiders in that network. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Asya Fuchs, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Our guest today was partner at Castle Island Ventures and co-founder of Coinmetrics, Nick Carter. Today's episode was produced by me. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Patella. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.